0: This is The Danger Close Podcast, beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to The Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. And before I was about to jump on and do this, I reached in my pocket, pulled out my wallet, and what is that right there? That is my Navy Federal Credit Union card, from 1996. So right after boot camp, I was at Intelligence Specialist A School in Dam Neck, Virginia, and we marched on over to the Navy Federal Credit Union branch, and I became a member. So that is 25 years ago. So thank you, Navy Federal Credit Union, for jumping on as a sponsor to this podcast. Thank you for those 20 years that I was in the military, and thank you for that service that continues today. Now you can find Navy Federal Credit Union at Navyfederal.org. That's the website. So go on and check that out. Get control of those finances here after the holidays, if they've gotten a little bit out of control. Uh, They have multiple savings and investment options for you to check out there and digital tools with educational resources to help guide those financial decisions. So Navyfederal.org, check them out. My guest today is the legendary Stephen Hunter. Stephen Hunter created the character Bob Lee Swagger. You might know him from the movie Shooter and the USA series by the same name, all based off Stephen Hunter's character, Bob the Naylor, introduced in 1993 in the book Point of Impact. But we talk about a lot more on this podcast, including Stephen Hunter's time in the military as a member of the Old Guard, where he performed ceremonial duties at Arlington National Cemetery, then worked his way into the newsroom at the Baltimore Sun, first as a copy editor, then as a book critic, then as a movie critic. An incredible career in journalism, almost 40 years. During that time, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. Uh, he has long been an inspiration to me, and it's such an honor to have him on the podcast. So, now, without further ado, the legendary Stephen Hunter. I'm so thank you so, for, so much for doing this. Oh, my goodness. It's my pleasure, believe oh. me, Jay. I'm so
1: pleased at your support. It's been meant so much to me.
0: Oh, well, and believe me, guys I mean,
1: help old guys. It's fabulous.
0: Oh, it's, it's such an honor for me. And uh, obviously, you know, your, your friendship has meant so much to me over these last few years. And uh, it's, uh, you know, they say never meet your heroes, but uh, they're wrong. And, uh, and you know, no idea how ironic
1: it is. You calling me a
0: hero. <laughs>
1: you know, I sit in front of a screen and a keyboard. That's as heroic as it gets for me. You, a different story.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, you have been a constant companion, uh, in my life since I discovered, of course, like most, a lot of people, uh, discovered your work through point of impact and the book that introduced the world to Bob Lee Swagger. And of course, so that was before I I joined the military and it's one of those things that, uh, that. Uh, cemented me on my path to be a sniper. Um, But you were with me on all those deployments. You were with me in all the workups, getting ready for deployments as I'd wait for the next book to come out, uh, knowing what I wanted to do later in life. Um, So I'm always reading and always wondering when that next book of yours is going to come out because- you weren't on a one a year, uh, type of a cycle for quite some time because you were busy at newspapers, being a film critic, winning Pulitzer prizes, like all these things you had going on. So you weren't on this one a year, uh, type of a schedule for a while. So as I'm running around doing all my seal stuff, I never knew when one was going to come out. Uh, and luckily my dad would send me one, he'd get it first and then send it to me. Um, so I, I got to stay up to date that way. But, um, uh, yeah, let's let's kick things off because uh, most people probably know you as an author uh, now today, but uh, you started off as in the copy room, didn't you? Before becoming I, yeah, a film I was, critic,
1: I was a what's called a copy reader,
0: and I sit
1: there and theoretically. I improve and check for accuracy uh, the work that is given to me, and it's it's in the newspaper business. Uh, they call it copy. So I was reading other people's copy, and it turned out I was really lousy at it. And the reason (laughs) is, like an author, like any author, like any writer, I was narcissistic. And I didn't really care that much if I made it better or worse. And basically what I did was they had something in the newspaper business where they call it hooking the graphs. And that is you draw a little hook at the big first letter of each paragraph. And so- you know, that's all I would do: sit there week after week, hooking graphs. And uh, somehow, in those days, they didn't fire people. They didn't know what to do with non performers. They just sort of let them drift and float in their own in their own bile. And eventually, I became a book review editor, which was it sounds glamorous, but it's not. It was just glorified copy reading, and. Uh, I was able then to start, you know, publishing myself, uh, which meant that uh, my first sale was to me. It was a pretty easy sale. I have to say it was the easiest sale I ever had. And I began to attract notion as a writer. Uh, I'm sorry, attract attention as a writer. And that's what led to certain professional openings, which led to other openings, which is how I ended up a film critic. Uh, There's more to the story, but it's so boring, I've forgotten it all. (laughs) So in the blur, the thing is I hired myself as a writer and then someone else hired me as a writer. And that's the secret of my success.
0: Well, you had 10 years of slogging it out and I didn't realize that you were a book reviewer before you got that film critic, uh, posting, um, at the, at the Baltimore sun. So, so it was a, it wasn't 10 years of, of, uh, no, copy I was editing? A great copy
1: reader for two years. Okay. Then I had eight years as a book review editor ah. and that was really good for about six years, but by year seven and eight, I was tired of it. And you don't realize, I mean, that this this is talk about first world problems, but books accumulate really fast. And most of what I was doing was trying to keep, you know, I get 100 books a day, five days a week, and the cabinet would fill and getting rid of the books. and My main issues were issues of logistics, uh, but it was also an introduction to publishing and to book reviewing. I realized that only about one in 25 books even gets reviewed Mm. Uh, and that publishers uh, really don't rely. The reviews were very important to me uh, because they were what I was being paid to write and to uh, accumulate and to hire other people to write. But the publishers really didn't care. They Mm. Books, as you've learned, as anyone who does this for some kind of a living, Learns books rise and fall based on other factors than reviews. You know, I thought the world depended on book reviews, I thought it was one of the seven pillars of civilization. But book reviewing disappeared, and civilization is sort of still here. Maybe (laughs) I was right, maybe it's falling because there's no more book reviews, No (laughs) no ties. That could be the End of Western civilization.
0: It may be, maybe onto something. Uh, but before you got that copy edit job, so you had a degree in journalism. Uh, and then you went into into the military and you were at the uh with the old guard. So I realized as I was reading, as I was uh just getting ready to make uh, my quick brush up on a couple of things before this, that I've never seen a photo of you from that time. And uh, I, there I must know. be one that exists somewhere.
1: Oh, and not only is there one that exists, but army. What is the Army magazine? Well, this is a typical Army story. I know this wouldn't happen in the Navy, Jack. You'll guarantee me this could happen. We had to do a White House ceremony at the Old Guard. and I was brand new to the unit. And so they decided it was a Medal of Honor ceremony, as a matter of fact, uh, for two very brave guys, a helicopter pilot and a young man who jumped on a grenade and somehow survived. I mean, he was really... Chopped up, but he survived. It, Richard Nixon was giving them the Medal of Honor as they uh, as they both deserved, and uh, they lined us up, but they put the new guys at the back of the formation because we were we were at the Oval by the uh, by the White House wow. and behind the White House, and they wanted the experienced guys up visible to the public. And the inexperienced guys way at the rear, you know, closer to the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument. And uh, then, of course, they marched us in backwards. So I ended up 10 feet from this ceremony, PFC Hunter holding the flag uh, as Richard Nixon and these two heroes walked by. And some, you know, the Army documents everything, and there were photographers there. And somehow that picture of young PFC Hunter, <laughs> this, this is so insane, ended up in the big army slick magazine. It comes out once a month. And uh, I, I just I wish I still had it. it. It would be so much fun to look at. But,
0: oh, I'm tracking I, I that thing more down. Hair
1: and less flesh. Otherwise, I was exactly the same.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think I, I have a new mission now to, uh, to track that down amongst all the other things that, uh, that I well, have going that, on. I'd love it, to see that. It
1: has to, a hard copy has to exist.
0: Somewhere. Absolutely somewhere. And uh, so where did you go to boot camp then? How did that? Uh, so after so you already graduated from college and now, it's, yeah. now you go to it's boot camp at like Fort Polk or somewhere? Where are they doing no, it back no, then? It
1: was, uh, I went to Fort Dix. Okay. Uh, we call it basic training. Uh, it was very basic training. Uh, it basically trained you to get up in the morning <laughs> at some <laughs> ungodly hour. And you couldn't say I mean I, I, I think I got more out of the army than it got out of me. It <laughs> does a young man good, I think to be in a situation where nobody really cares about your feelings mm-hmm. and where you can't say, you know, Sarge, I just don't feel into the military today. You know, you can't do that. No. <laughs> they're not too sympathetic. No, they're that. not. And you learn that there are duties. You have to do the duties. It doesn't Nobody cares what moods you're in, uh, whether your girlfriend broke up with you, whether you had too many beers at the one, two, three club. Nobody cares. You know, just do the work. And that was the lesson of the military. And, uh, you know, I benefited enormously from it. As I say, I did nothing of note or of merit. Uh, I loved going, you know, I did learn how to mark. I did have a very good uh, manual of arms with the old M14. I actually, for a while, owned a Springfield uh, M1A, and I tried to recapitulate my my youthful brilliance with the rifle and that's 10 pounds of weight. <laughs> and if you don't do it right, you slam it into your head. Oh, I just, I lacked the craziness of youth mm. that would let me snap that rifle and it go to pr- uh, present arms. Uh-huh. And uh, I just, I couldn't make myself do it. I'd, I'd <laughs> lost whatever, Whatever. So that's my. That was my. Uh, that's my. That was the most dangerous thing I ever did. <laughs> yeah. I was wounded. Uh, I was wounded. I was at Camp Ap Hill in Virginia. I was there taking pictures of the general's visit to the Old Guards annual field training a uh, month. And uh, at, when I was off duty, I went to the One Two Three Club, had a few too many beers, and walked into barbed wire. And I fell into a patch of barbed wire and I hooked myself oh. through my, my upper lip. Oh. And I was like a fish on a dock. <laughs> I literally couldn't move. And they came and, and clipped me out and laughed at me and uh, gave me penicillin shots and <laughs> sewed up my mouth and, so that's I have shed blood for my country. Yeah,
0: serious. That's pretty serious, uh, right there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I keep waiting for the purple heart to arrive, but somehow <laughs> it hasn't gotten in the mail
0: yet. I I'm know they'll get it. I'm sure it's in the mail. I'm sure it's in the yeah. mail. So, in basic training, were you guys using? Did you have M16s at that point, or M14s, no. or M1 grands?
1: I was in a cycle that was just about to be ended, and it was oriented towards European war. Mm-hmm. We were the guys who were going to go in with the tanks to fold the gap yeah. when the Russians moved into Germany. Uh, meanwhile, it was kids who were sent to where most went, to went to Fort Polk where they got jungle training and they sent to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how I ended up in the old guard because to send me to Vietnam, they would have to retrain me. And, you know, as you know, the military is also about cutting costs. And wherever they can cut a cost, they'll cut that cost. And they don't want to train people twice. So I ended up in the old guard because I was not a jungle expert. Uh, You know, I was an expert at uh, virtually nothing, although I was a pretty good shot. And I did, you know, the M14 is a very fine rifle. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed all the work we did with the M14. Little did I know that I would spend every morning for the next 18 months marching around a field with one on my shoulder. That wasn't my, <laughs> I never thought, you know, that was uh, what was in in store for me. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was very interesting to see the ceremonial side of the military. I did see that for many, many years in every one of my books, there was a military funeral. And the reason for that was that when I got to the old guard for the first six months, I was a pallbearer. Wow. And I had the melancholy task of escorting uh, many fallen soldiers to their to their final resting place in Arlington National Cemetery. And I think that's it is. I think that was the one good thing I did, because I think that the ceremony was of great help to the grief stricken parents and they needed they needed to make peace with what had happened. And the ceremony gave you know gave them an image of value and valor and respect uh, that nothing else in the process did. Mm -hmm. So I felt that I felt that that actually helped people. Ultimately, they I stopped doing that because they discovered I as a quote a writer. I ended up in the PIO office. I was a hard charging throat-cutting midnight PIO warrior.
0: (laughs) Nice. And and it was public affairs? What uh, (laughs) what was the I for? public Information office. Got it.
1: it, it, I mean, it was... You know, the only thing you can say is the military is not about doing you favors. It's about doing itself favors. Mm -hmm. They put me there because they thought uh, what I was doing had value. It didn't, to me... But it did to them, and so you know, I it, it, again, I couldn't have had an easier time in the military, particularly when a lot of people were having very hard times in the military. And as a consequence of that, I can't, you know, I I, I can joke about and tell, I hope, funny or amusing stories about, but I would never disrespect them. And those guys were. You know, none of them wanted to be there. None of the officers, none of the uh, career NCOs because they were professional soldiers and marching pretty boys around a field didn't seem to them. But they understood that that was, that you got an assignment, you did the assignment. And, and, and learning that discipline and learning that commitment, even as something that feels foolish, like a parade, uh, for the for the retirement of a spec four, he's 20 years in and he's a spec four. Well, okay, give him a parade. You know, it was like something out of Catch 22, and it, as stupid as it sounded, it was of some value somewhere, if only to the culture of the professional military. And so, in that sense you know i served and 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 uh i have no regrets or uh i have no sourness uh i you know i uh, this was also the height of the vietnam war protests the old guard had security duties and i can remember spending a weekend with a 45 on my hip in the treasury building because there were thoughts of people Uh, that the the demonstrators would crash the White House. And there was no, uh, the White House wasn't sealed off as it is now. It was just open to the public. And there were thousands of kids there, including my wife, who was on the other side of the fence. Uh, But what I did was I spent the time playing with my 45 automatic, trying to sleep on a desk at some know gs-14's desk in the treasury department you know i the guy who orders the new dollars i was i was sleeping on his desk and you know the kids never attacked the white house and we never had to do anything except be there and that's all you know that's also what the military gets paid mm-hmm. you get paid for being there that's right. and it doesn't matter if it's boring or if it's cold or if it's wet your job is it to be a hero, your job? Is it to leave the area spick and span? Your job is just to be there. And so we were there. So that's I, I. the only thing I could say. I was not a hero, but I went where they said, and I was there. Even on that GS9's uh, desk. <laughs> that's why there was a shortage of $1 bills for 10 years after. <laughs> <laughs> I must have inadvertently trashed the order for billion new one dollar bills.
0: <laughs> I think it's fantastic. and uh, I'm surprised that the military recognized either a talent or bothered to look into your background and saw that hey, this guy has a degree in journalism and put you in a place where you' uh, where the military could exploit that talent because usually uh, I, well, I saw the opposite a lot of times. like if we had a fluent Spanish speaker, where would we send him to Iraq? And where, and exactly where would the person that spoke Arabic or Farsi or, uh, Pashto go, they would go to Colombia, Um, and that's just for whatever reason, I don't know how that stuff happens, but more often than not, that's what I experienced in the military. So for them to recognize that back in the early seventies and put you in a, in a position where you, or, uh, where you, where your talent could be, uh, could thrive. That's a, that's surprising.
1: Well, see the way it works is that there's no lateral movement in the general culture, but at the battalion level, you can move laterally if you tell people, and I told people who I what you know mm. what my background was, and volunteered to go to PIO, and they eventually paid attention to me and and made that move. So uh, you, you know it was like a it was like a sideways move, and I don't know if it was for the best or for the worst. It probably was for the best. Uh, you know, I, as I say, I got to see lots of really interesting things. Um, I, I just it was just it wasn't a promotion. It was a lateral movement and it was instigated by by rabble rousing or networking, if you will, at the very lowest level. It wasn't it wasn't like it that wasn't the army
0: looking into you I got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was not yeah. due to the brilliance of the army and their no, administrative no, system. Wasn't.
1: <laughs> no. it was, it was due to the squeakiness of my voice
0: <laughs> nice uh, no i love it i love it and then when you guys so you knew in boot camp that you were destined for uh for european theater and any contingencies that might take place uh, there?
1: not so much in boot camp but in uh what's in the army it's called uh ait advanced yeah. individual training and i was in a cycle and i was trained for the mos of 11 bravo light weapons Infantry, mm. and uh, but uh, the training was all at Fort Dix in the wintertime. So it was, like, it was like the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> I mean, we were always in snowy uh, environments. It was always cold. We were always wrapped up. And we were shooting, you know, the best rifle of World War II. And we were, you know, using an M60, which is basically a German MG42. Mm. So uh, we still were using bazookas. And recoilless rifles, all of which were World War II weapons. And the army hadn't gotten cool with uniforms yet. So we wore those ridiculous foreign legion, you know, turt-like and they were just so <laughs> ridiculous. And the ironic thing was that the haircuts that they forced us to wear, I hated because I was very vain about my hair. And now that hairstyle, the white side that's <laughs> the end. I look at these kids and I was like, what are you in the old guard or yeah, something?
0: That's right. That I, I've noticed that as well. <laughs> yeah. What goes around comes around. I guess so. I guess so. And then, uh, then when you found out that you weren't going uh, to Europe, um, to do what you've been trained for, but you're going to the, the old guard, which meant a lot of spit and polish meant that uniform had to be perfect. That haircut had to be perfect. That the marching had to be perfect. That weapons work had to be perfect. The ceremonial side of things had to be so precise. Um, what, what did you think when we were you just like, okay, I'll go where the army tells me or were, what would you think about going to the old guard when you finally found out you were going there?
1: Uh, I had doubts. It was the same set of doubts I had when I was hired as a copy reader. Uh, For the newspaper in that I knew that that really wasn't my cup of tea, that the kind of spit and polish, the kind of uh, precise attention to detail, uh, the culture of, of, of perfection of uniform and dress. That was not a strength of mine, but I thought. I'll go along with it and see what it gets me, and maybe it'll kick me out after three weeks. Just as when I was hired as a copy reader, I knew I was not a good copy reader. I mean, I knew I was a writer, and I couldn't get a job as a writer, but I knew, as I knew in the Army, and it's basically true of any institution or entity that hires people, the trick is to get in any way you can and do as well as you can also meet people, get people to like and respect you, try and find allies, try not to get on anybody's wrong side. And at that point, a lateral move to something that you're better suited for is almost always possible. And that happened to be both in the military and and in journalism. And uh, all of those led me to eventually... Meet someone in publishing who was able to uh, invite me into that world, and all of that was all of that was lateral movement. And I, looking back on it, it seems, boy, that guy was really shrewd. But I didn't think of it as shrewdness. I didn't have a plan other than a very basic plan. Uh, I thought that if I got to a newspaper. And became a prominent writer on a newspaper, then I could get into publishing, and that's essentially what happened. And uh, I, yeah. when I think, and I was also the other thing we can't discount, Jack, and you will agree with this, is the play of dumb luck. Uh, timing is luck, and things happen when they happen, irregardless of you. But frequently to your benefit. And you just, there's no way to predict it. There's no way to expect it. There's no way to understand it. It just happens that way. And in my particular case in journalism, twice I was stymied by the internal culture of old organizations that is, the internal culture of the Baltimore Sun and the internal culture of the Washington Post. And in both cases, had nothing to do with me. But in both cases, all of a sudden, seemingly from nowhere, there were interior revolutions that completely changed the cultures of those two newspapers. And suddenly, what was meaningless to the old guys was meaningful to the new guys. And it was not a thing that you could have anticipated. And a month before it happened, there was no indication that it might happen. I just was set up so that I got through, you know, so that, so the doors suddenly opened for me. I didn't even know there were doors. (laughs) And I will say also that was slightly true with with the publishing in that the woman I met was uh, an editorial assistant, but I met her And within a year, she became an assistant editor. And by migrating those two words, the the noun and the and the adjective, she suddenly acquired she suddenly had the right to acquire books. And she remembered me, and we'd had a very good lunch together, and she wrote me a letter, and she said, "You know, I've been with a lot of writers and a lot of editors, and I have to say, you don't have the personality of an editor. You have the personality of a writer. Do you write? Do you have anything to show me? And that's what started the whole, the whole game off. No you know, kidding. that got me into the game, her, her insight. Now, the fact that she was clinically insane, <laughs> later complicated matters. But when she had to be, she was, you know, she was, and see, it came at a time in her career you know, most editors aren't looking to acquire new writers. Mm-hmm. They've got their stable. They've got the writers they know and trust and that they've worked with over the years. And to sort of crack that, that circle is very tough. However, when, as was true with Maria, she suddenly had the power to acquire books. She wanted to hit the ground running. So rare as it is, she was very, very anxious to sign young writers. And again, that was nothing I could, I could predict. It was nothing I could control. It was nothing I could, uh, uh, you know, stage manage or puppeteer. It just happened because I was who I was and she was who she was. And we were where we were in our careers.
0: But you were also prepared. So that's the other well, part of the of the luck when that door cracks, uh if you're not prepared or you haven't built that, this foundation
1: so, that's exactly the point I was about to make because when she said, "Do you have anything to show me, I did wow, I had a book that I'd been working on, and it was you know five hundred pages long, and she read it, and she didn't think it was good enough to publish, but she thought it was very, very, very promising. And while she was considering it, I came up with and started working on The Master Sniper. Uh, And I had learned from the first two novels I had written how not to write a novel. And I had a much better idea of how to write a novel with The Master Sniper. And that published... You know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. 1980. Oh my (laughs) God, that was the first book I published. And I knew when I came up with that idea and I came up with that outline that that it was publishable. I, I knew that it worked in a way the other two books hadn't worked. And I knew that if I just stayed to the structure of the story and did the research and thought hard about it, you know, and gave it everything that it would, that it would, it would happen, uh, as a, as a career, uh, uh, occurrence and, and it, and it did. So that's, that started the ball rolling.
0: That's amazing. But you, so with these two first novels that you wrote while you were at the the copy desk or while you moved into book review views at the, at the sun, uh, what happened to those two? Are they still in a drawer somewhere? Did you dust them off and morph them into something else later on?
1: They are in a drawer somewhere. The problem is, I don't know where that drawer is. <laughs> Maybe my mother threw them out. I don't know what happened to them. Maybe my first wife, you know, <laughs> burned them, them out. Them. She should probably burned them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big, huge flaming funeral pyre. Uh-huh. Um, and you know what? I'm not sure I would go back. Mm. Uh, I. I'm not averse to going back, and I know a lot of people do go back, but I'm not sure I want to encounter who I was then. Huh. I'm so smugly happy with who I am now.
0: I love it. Damn, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I, love I don't it. want
1: to. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to see what I Chucklehead I was in those days
0: <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be curious to take a look at those. but uh, but you you also had this I mean, you went to school for journalism, so um when you did that, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do in journalism? Was it to be absolutely. a book critic or a, or I just to get in it. the door and figure out it figure it out from there?
1: I'm one of the few people who absolutely achieved his goals. I had a double goal. I wanted to be a film critic on a major good American newspaper and I wanted to write on the side thrillers and that was that was a double goal that I conceived of probably the age of 12. And yes, indeed, I succeeded at achieving those goals. And I still am not sure how or why I did it how, how I did it. Uh, as I say, so much of it was luck, so much of it was freaks of timing and physics, so much of it was happenstance it it didn't feel coherent, but looked at from a long way away or looked at in retrospect, maybe it was uh, maybe it was uh, carefully plotted out. But it certainly didn't feel like it to me. It just felt like everybody's life, which is one damn thing after another.
0: Ah well, you. I mean you set the you put in the work. That's I mean you put in the work. You had your goal. And uh I had to feel that's similar to what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a SEAL and I wanted to write thrillers. Those are the two things. Those are the two goals. Yeah. And uh so I focused on both those things, uh, almost exclusively. Um and and now one has happened and one is, is happened, Or I guess both have happened, I guess, happened, yeah. but, uh, it's, but you put in that work, you put in that work, went to journalism school, and then you spent that time in the copy room and you were ready when that door cracked a tiny bit, you were ready to kick it all the way in. And, uh, and then we got the master sniper and then we have this, I mean, uh, this amazing bibliography that you have today and this Pulitzer prize for, for distinguished criticism. And it's, it, it's been an amazing journey and people have gotten to uh, to share that journey with you through your work, both at the newspaper and in the novels. And I'm so upset because I have the first thing I did when I got my first check from Simon and Schuster was to buy, uh, first editions signed of every single one of your novels, uh, through mystery, Mike Bursaw out there at mystery Mike's in Indiana. And, uh, he searches these things out for me. Um, but I, we're moving. So there's boxes everywhere here. And I thought I had those first boxes set aside. So I cut them open this morning and I looked inside and they weren't the right boxes. So the other ones have already, they've been moved to the other house already. And so I was going to have them all lined up here for you. Uh, but I do have, a, I do have, a, a, I do have one that I pulled out uh, earlier. Uh, this one right here. If you can see, see that one. Yep. Yep. So it's uh, a critic's 13 years on the front lines of movie mayhem, uh, violent screen. Um, yes. But you were in. Journalism. So then for 40 years, is that- uh,
1: 38 years,
0: 38 years.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, and, and 26 of them is a film critic, 16 at the, uh, at the sun and uh, 11 at the post.
0: I mean, that's a solid yeah. run right there.
1: Well, it, it, it was a solid run. It would be nice if I remembered one day of it, but it, <laughs> to me, it's just a, it's a blur, well, you know, I well, the, w- one of the funny things about the sun was that as I was say I was there for 26 years, but in those 26 years, I was sitting under a certain fluorescent light. <laughs> and but for six months, when they totally arranged the uh, of the office, but for those six months, but then they went back to the old way. I literally did not move three feet one way <laughs> or the department that life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God, that is fantastic. And and you'd be working there, then you'd go, You, I think I read, it was 250 films a year? Is that?
1: uh Yeah, I did. I, again, you have to do the work. And uh, I, you know, having that job again was, uh, I wanted it so bad and uh, I somehow got it. And once I got it, I was like a dog who clenched it too, so hard in his mouth he broke his jaw and i just would not let it go and i defended my turf and i i tried to outwork everybody on the staff uh i tried to uh you know i just did everything that could be done to excel at, at that craft mm-hmm. because it was so ridiculously uh uh, uh important to me. and I, I will say that after I won the Pulitzer Prize in 03, a few years after that, I, I suddenly came to the realization that, you know, you don't really have to do this for a living. You know what I'm saying? The movies had gotten very juvenile, and one of my strengths as a movie critic, that very few movie critics had, was that I was infantile, that I still liked westerns and commando movies and and uh, uh war movies and historical dramas and musicals uh you know i wasn't uh, axiomatically in the european art camp mm-hmm. or uh and that I, I always thought that gave me a kind of a populist streak and uh suddenly those movies just became almost unbearable you know mm-hmm. i mean uh, they became Mostly computer generated effects, mostly starring young men in plaid shirts who weighed 140 pounds and had way too much moose in their hair. (laughs) And they were always, they were inevitably about the invasion of Earth by, I don't know, giant washing machines or something. And I just, yeah, I just, I I just, I, I just, I, I just, I lost my taste for it. And they were like, Three or four, maybe four or five movies a year that I really hungered to mm-hmm. engage, but the rest of them, it had become extremely, uh, oh, even dispiriting. I think would be the word. And I didn't see; it, it was not making me happy. It was giving me no pleasure, uh. and I didn't see; uh, I didn't see it improving. And indeed it has. So I don't, I don't regret that decision in
0: the least. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was a good time to, to move on. Yeah. The other thing is
1: I was lucky to spend my life in newsrooms. And newsrooms are great places. You get to spend some time in a newsroom, you'll never forget it. They're happy, competitive, crazy, goofy, drunken places. But my newsroom, uh, my generation of people all took buyouts. And suddenly I was in a newsroom with people who were 20 or 30 years younger than me. And I it just I just didn't quite I didn't see the point. You know what I mean? I I mean it was so when I left it wasn't like I left the party. When I left there was no party. The party was over. And so it was much easier to leave under those circumstances. Than, uh, than it might
0: have been. Well, I mean, you had an incredible run. I mean, getting the, the Pulitzer Prize. And I want to ask you a little bit about the, the politics behind the Pulitzer uh, in a second. But uh, speaking of politics in general, over those 37, 38 years in, uh, in journalism, there were drastic changes from early 70s to today. were drastic today. changes.
1: I migrated from standard, banal, boring left to uh, what I would call mildly right uh i uh, uh you know i i i was formed by the 50s and one of the things that's happened to me and the guns uh sort of brought me in this line to this position the guns have drawn me to the right uh the uh and sort of recovered memories of uh of, of the ideas of honor and male nobility and obligation, and service, and courage, those have, uh, those are more pointed now to me than they ever were in my 20s and 30s and 40s. And um, I think my work has reflected that. And I was, uh, I was a surprisingly conservative voice on the surprisingly liberal Washington Post. But I, I mean, I can't, I'm, believe me, I am not complaining about this. I was very well treated by everyone on the post. Uh, I was very well paid. I was respected. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I. it's not like I left the post in a cloud of bitter anger. I left the post uh, happily and with uh, fond memories and I waved goodbye and they waved goodbye and It's very happy. Now that's a different post than the post is now. Uh, I left Donnie Graham's post. Donnie Graham, the publisher of The Great Graham Family, he was a great man, or he is a great man. He had the most incredible gift for remembering names and faces I ever encountered in my life. He forgot nobody. And he was always charming and cheerful and effervescent, even when he had extremely difficult health problems. And he sold the post finally because it got too much for him. He sold it to Steve Bezos. And I'm not, you know, please don't make me comment on the new post and the new New York.
0: <laughs> no, I was gonna- not
1: places that have been particularly hospitable to me. Yeah. nor would they today be hospitable to me,
0: yeah.
1: um, to who I am now. But you know that's what it is, and nothing's going to change that. Nothing I can do. Yeah, will change that.
0: Yeah, but in general, when you stepped into that first newsroom, it was most everybody I think um, thought their job was to be objective. Um, that's
1: exactly true, Jack. And then it—that so good. Not only that, most of that. See, when I stepped into my first newsroom in 1970, most of the men who were running the newspaper were World War II veterans. Mm-hmm. And they came back from the war I mean, they sat next to a guy who fought his way across Europe in all the way through the bulls to, to, to Germany. And uh, every single man except the kids uh, was uh, coming to come and they all wear coats and ties every day. And they, they were committed to this idea, this ideal of the, of the newspaper is the objective uh, reality of, uh, and it used to be said in Baltimore uh, if it's in the sun, it's so, mm. because the people of Baltimore knew that the sun would tell it straight. And for years and years with bureaus, and it was a great paper for many, many, many years. Uh, and you know, the whole business changed when the internet came and it shrunk and the old they got rid of the older folks uh sometimes mercilessly sometimes gently uh and a whole new generation took over they had different ideas about journalism and that is why we are where we are which is where we are today
0: yeah it's it's tough it's to sad. i, I yeah. think it's sad all old men think it's sad <laughs>
1: Well, no. well, I'm catching up That's quickly the
0: then, I think. Uh, and it, so it seems like it went from objectivity to this kind of underlying, um, almost a, a, a sabotage insurgency type of left wing, just bias creeping into now activist. And to now where we're proud to actually say that we are a certain way rather than try to at least proclaim objectivity, if even if it's not true.
1: Trump made them insane he annoyed, I didn't annoy them, he (laughs) made them crazy. And they threw everything out the window because they felt he was such an insult. And they felt that with a passion that in my mind was a little frightening. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was craziness and they couldn't accept the fact that, you know, he was who he was. Couldn't accept the fact that his ties were too long, that he had a vulgar Queen's accent, and that he apparently has a sense of humor of a, of a I don't know. A, he's got a terrible sense of humor. His jokes always fall flat, and he's very angry. And he spends way too much time uh, tweeting angrily. But so what? You know, that's not. The presidency the presidency is policy and its commitment to big goals and it's it's hard work and belief in in the country and that's what he represented and all the other stuff that he was judged on was irrelevant and it, it's uh, i i think it's it's a, it's a shame
0: and you got it seems like you got the pulitzer in the nick of time Um. Well,
1: here's what I feel like. I feel like I was the last person off the Titanic (laughs) at Liverpool in 1912, and when I got off the Titanic, it was a beautiful ship. It was glorious. It was glamorous. It was uh, it was splendid. It spoke of the the discipline and the beauty of civilization, and then. So, and I have no memories that means of it hitting the iceberg. The iceberg it hit was Trump mm-hmm. and it sank it, you know, it down, down deep into the cold black waters. And uh, where's Clive Cussler when we
0: need him? <laughs>
1: Come on, Clive, raise, the Titanic, raise the Titanic. For God's sake. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, he was one of those guys that uh, was one of the first, I think, to do the one a year type novel and just start knocking those out like late seventies into the eighties. And you could expect one every year when most other authors weren't really on that type of a, a schedule yet anyway. Oh, no. but,
1: uh, but I, I would think that the, uh, uh, using the computer greatly accelerates. Ah, the interesting. You don't have to, you know, your second draft, you don't have to retype 300 pages. You retype, you know, 300 lines, and you're finished with the draft. That's an exaggeration. But it's much simpler to manipulate the text with the computers. In fact, when they came in, I worried because I was always able to beat more talented people because I would, as you say, do the work. And I thought that now that the work is easier, they're going to, you know, it's that's not going to inhibit them. But they never did the work. Yeah. So, no, exactly. No matter what. Right. They're not going to do the work. Come
0: on. Yep. They're never going to. It's do work. The
1: work. Yeah. Here's... Do, they do the work in the bar <laughs> talking about it.
0: That's right. So, yeah, here's the lady. Here's my latest. I just printed it out. So, at this stage, I, uh, I bind it so I can try yep. to experience it through the eyes of someone who hasn't been intimately involved in its creation for the past year. Yes, take yes, about yes. a week or so and then go back to it and read it through, trying to read it like I'm reading it for the first time but it certainly helps to be able to print it out uh, and not not from a typewriter. Uh, so I will- No, I agree. <laughs> it's, I <completely>
1: agree <laughs> Definitely it. nice no,
0: no. to be able to, to do that and bind it at this uh, at this stage. Um, but so at some point, so you have Master Sniper comes out, but you're not really a quote unquote gun guy at this point. Uh, that comes a little bit later, uh, is yes that right?
1: No. Uh, I'd always been a gun guy. I was born a gun guy. I went through a period of about 10 or 15 years where, as I said before, I was very conventionally and banally liberal. And I was, you know, that was, that's the me. I I don't particularly want to meet up with again. And uh, I bought everything that I was told about guns in the media and the media has really never been very good on this issue. Uh, And then was, it's was very interesting. One night, I was, I was, it was in the early, late, I don't know, sometime in the late '70s. I went to uh, a movie, and I got there early, and I got my ticket, and I just was wandering around. I went into where there was a drugstore there, and it had a great magazine section, and I saw an issue of Shooting Times. And it was announcing the arrival of the Smith & Wesson 645. And I knew that Smith & Wesson was not a 45 company. It was a revolver company. I mean, it it, had never made a 45 uh, automatic before. And I knew that was big news in the gun world. So I bought that magazine just to read it while waiting for the movie to start. And three days later, I realized I'd read every single word in that magazine twice. And it was like coming home again. And I thought, this is where I belong. And I began, that's when I re-entered gun culture. And my first entryway was through gun magazines. Started reading gun magazines crazily. Finally, I bought a gun. First gun I ever bought was a Taurus 92. Uh, You know, it's a clone of a Beretta. And I was so nervous about it that I rented a locker to keep it uh, or a a storage bin to keep it away from, so it wouldn't be in the house. Because what if I get angry and start shooting? (laughs) And I realized after about three months that I was never going to get angry and start shooting. And that almost nobody is gonna get angry and start shooting. And that, that the gun, the first moment you hold a gun, it's magical and charismatic. The second moment you hold the gun, or the second day you hold the gun, it's extremely drab and boring. It's a tool, it's a piece of machinery, it has no soul, it has no, it has no magic capacity to seduce you into behavior which you would not otherwise comprehend and the whole myth of gun as demon is spurious and it's it's put up by people who don't understand guns who fear guns who fear gun culture who want to push gun owners and gun people out of mainstream culture denormalize it if you will the books are about In one sense, the arc is the sniper, the killer, suddenly uh, returning to society and no longer being in exile. But I realize now in a larger frame, they're about the gun guy. He doesn't have to be a sniper. He doesn't have to be Jack. He can be Steve and how he should, you know, society is for him too. Nobody has any right to push him out of society. Michael Bayne has a wonderful line. He talks about the normalizing of gun culture. And if you work in a newsroom, everybody hates and fears guns. And you think that that's America. It's not America. In America, most people, well, millions of people love guns, need guns, like guns, use guns, are attracted to guns. And the, the rules of gun handling and gun ownership are all positive rules. It's discipline, it's self-control, it's practice, it's doing the work. And those are values that our children would benefit from learning and uh, would benefit from being taught. and, uh, and, and What a small percentage of people think of guns is not the reality of guns. And so one of the things that the books have been about, I hope, is bringing, is making the gunman, showing a sniper who has a family, who is part of civilization, who has friends, who may know the difference between the 3006 and the 308. But at the same time, pays his taxes on times, votes, and uh, coaches little league baseball. He's not some hulking loner, and so, so that's kind of the, the secret message in the books.
0: Yep, no, and it's clear to to everyone who reads them, which is why you have this huge following, and it's so it's so great that I mean, no one has a voice like yours, uh, and by that I mean. I can pick up one paragraph that I have that's not there's no name attached to it and I will know instantly that it is you. Um there are very few other people if any writing today where you can where you can do that. Uh especially if there's no character names obviously attached to it. Right, I was yeah. uh, I was flipping through a gun magazine maybe let's say almost 8 10 years ago maybe and uh I forget you wrote an article I think it was uh something about uh, Hollywood and guns or something like that. But I didn't know it was you. I was just flipping through quickly the way I do with magazines that come and I'm going through. And I saw that, I started reading a little bit and I'm like, this sounds sounds like Stephen Hunter. And then I flipped the page back and sure enough, it was you. And (laughs) (laughs) there is no mistaking that voice. And that's something that you can't really say about uh, any other author today. And that the most, uh, the the compliment that means the most to me uh, is when someone says that, you have captured the culture and the spirit of the gun uh that hasn't been done since Stephen Hunter. Um yes. and, oh, well isn't that yeah. And that means the most to me. Uh I think Clint Smith well, said something like that from, that from Thunder Ranch. And I think you got to talk to him from one of your one of your novels. Uh
1: yes, and he was very he's a very good guy. And uh I then I ran into him at that shot yeah. show where you and I ran into each other. And he's another guy with that gift for remembering faces and people. And uh, he didn't miss a beat when I walked up to him. He, you know, hi, Steve, how are you? You know, it was just it was amazing. So cool. Uh, so well, I know he's, he's a huge great fan great of your guy.
0: work and uh, he's certainly yeah. never forgotten your your encounter. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, and at some point, uh, did you ever dabble in screenwriting before, the, the, yeah. the bo- before Bob Lee Swagger came on the scene?
1: Yeah, I went out to Hollywood for a month and worked on a screenplay of The Day Before Midnight okay my commando novel and it didn't really work out i it's not my time i, I realized that i'm screenwriting is a very technical kind of writing and you've got to know its hidden rules mm-hmm. and it takes years to master those rules and a, a lot of newspaper men, i think oh, you know i'm going to write a screenplay and make a million dollars and then i'll write my serious novels that's delusional you're not going to write a screenplay you're not going to get a screenplay produced until you've written 200 screenplays Mm. you have to commit your life to the culture and the effort and the learning in order to compete in that world and it's not it's believe me it's not easy and i uh, it's just it Maybe had I applied myself, I might have been able to do it. Uh, But I also, you know, frankly, I didn't like the people. And uh, (laughs) I tell one of my lines is uh, someone, uh, sometimes I get asked by younger writers, you know, what the Hollywood process is is like. And my line is, just remember, you're not being paid in money. You're being paid in something much more precious, and that's funny stories to tell your friends when you get back home. (laughs) You know, in other words, you're going to meet very bizarre people and people of certitude, and uh, you know, it seems everyone in that business seems psychotic. (laughs) They all seem they all seem so incredibly intense, and uh, I just found myself uncomfortable around them. And uh, I, I, you know, they love the pressure. They love, uh, that that's their milieu that they love, but it's not really, uh, it, it wasn't, I wasn't terribly comfortable there and I'm very happy. You know, there's a famous line in, it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. And it's when uh, James Stewart gets back to George Bailey's real life and he reaches his hand in his pocket And he pulls out and he says, oh, my God, Zuzu's pedals. Mm -hmm. And when I got back from Hollywood, I thought of that line. I thought I could reach in my pocket and say, oh, my God, Zuzu's, Stevie's pedals. (laughs) Meaning meaning Steve was back to uh, the life that he Uh wanted as opposed to the lights that he thought he wanted.
0: Right. No, I can, I can see that because uh, writing a, obviously a book is a very solitary process. There's no yeah. one giving you advice. And um yeah. I don't know how it's been with other editors and publishers, but for us now we share the same publisher and editor, which is amazing. Yeah, I, I just, it, I love it. Um But Emily is so amazing. Emily Bessler, Emily Bessler books, part of Simon and Schuster. Um, but she doesn't give me Direction or say, hey, why don't you do this in your next book or this or or that? It's a very solitary thing, and it was a, sh- a shock to me that uh, hey, they've invested in you now, and they're still giving you complete creative control. No one is saying take some of that gun stuff out, make it less violent. Hey, does it really ha- you have to say this line here? It seems a little little right wing or whatever. No one says any of that or gives me any direction there, and I love that. Now switch that over to the Hollywood side where you have 15 people in a writer's room who are now taking yeah. your, your book and turning it yeah. into something that they wanna put their stamp on, uh, maybe sense. keeping the title, maybe not, um, but uh, it's a completely different, it's collaborative uh, and it's changing your, so I went into it knowing that that was the case, yeah. so I didn't. I, that was not yeah. a surprise to me, um, and because I've watched so many movies over my life, read so many books, I've noticed how the adaptation has changed the novel. Uh, so, yeah. Sometimes for better, some a lot of the times for worse. Um, but I went in there expecting that, so I didn't. I didn't think that I was going to change that culture, or I was going to be able yeah. to say, no, we need to do this. Um, but it's very interesting how it all worked out because a lot of times, uh, me and Antoine Fuqua, who I know, you know, from, uh, uh, from, yeah. from adapting uh, point of impact into shooter with Mark yeah. Wahlberg. Um, but me and him and Chris Pratt, we had to, cause now we have all these different production companies and we have Amazon and we have these executives all the way up the chain that gets a comment and then come all the way back down. So the three of us and the showrunner, David DiGiulio, we all had to like work together and try to figure out how to a lot of politicking, a lot of strategy, a lot of tactics. A lot. It's exhausting. I mean, it, and it is a full-time job. So this last year has been, uh, I need a little more sleep, a little more, uh, some exercise maybe. I need to eat a little better in this coming year because the last one was uh, was busy. But I do, they're two separate animals, the screenwriting for sure and sitting down yeah. by myself in front of that computer with no other inputs. Damn. Two totally separate animals. So I can I can see where you're coming from. But uh, was it your third novel that was a novelization of a film? I wanted to ask about Target and how that came, how that came about.
1: I've used the word Target now in three books. Uh, I was, there was a movie made with Matt Dillon mm-hmm. and Gene Hackman sometime in the 80s. And I was hired to write a novel based on the screenplay in six weeks. Wow. And uh, it's a nice piece of money. And uh I decided to do it just as a joke. <laughs> and I did it. And uh so that was published as Target. Then I wrote a book uh, years later about a, a terrorist event at a shopping center, and that was called Soft Target. And now I've got a book uh coming out called Target did and uh right here, yeah. Uh there So I'm, it's a target-rich environment when you're around me,
0: believe me. That's it, that's it. Yeah, I was curious about the novelizations because it seemed like in, uh, I don't know about the 70s, but the 80s for sure and into the early 90s, they were quite popular, the novelizations of films. Yes,
1: they were, they have seemed to have died. Uh, They saved, you know, a lot of writers did it and a lot of, uh, you know, it was money coming in for a lot of writers who might not have otherwise have have, uh, had that money um there is some talk on my friend Otto Penzler oh. at mysterious books he may republish target oh really and uh, we'll have to we'll have to change the title uh, because i can't have a book in the marketplace <laughs> called target when i also have a book in the marketplace called target did <laughs> I mean, that's asking for major logistical head- headaches, yeah. you know, it's just like, it's like having, you know, it's like having a, I don't know how they did it with a 30 caliber Carby and a 30-06 caliber M1. That must have just been crazy. <laughs> <the> world, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 You don't want to mess that up. That's uh, oh, I love it. I love it. But yeah, this is actually your copy. And this is such a, this is, you brought up Otto, uh, Otto Penzler. So that's right there is yeah. it's actually, it's so, and I don't want to crack. So when I, when I read it, I cracked it like this. So I was reading it like this because you're, it's your oh. copy and you signed it and I'm looking at it right here and I'm, uh, yeah, I didn't want to crack the binding too much here, but uh, I want to read something from it here. This first paragraph, because in, uh, in 1993, Bob Lee Swagger shows up uh and yeah. inter- you introduce the world to him but i think he was it's 1990 i think when the idea starts to form and you start to to move forward with this and then i read it in 1994 which i was very young in the, when the paperback came out um and which is my original is right here so right there's wow. my original it's all yellowed on the on the pages but that's my original and then uh of course i went back and then got the hardcover right there and then i have the first edition hardcover which is in one of these boxes uh at the other other house here but uh you write this you write bob lee swagger first dropped in on me sometime in 1990 possibly 91. i was sitting as i reconstructed at the kitchen table playing with plot ideas of which i had exactly two only one of which was technically mine (laughs) i had the second book due on a two-book contract for bantam and all writers will know what i'm talking about there wasn't a lot of fuel in the tank it was night, the family young. I think I was young also. Uh, Bob's arrival wasn't abrupt. I heard no voice. I saw no face. I read no body language. It's just that both plots involve somebody who knew a little something about shooting a rifle and watching someone drop. I mean, that's, that's him. And that's, that's, that was the start of what that's all him. this became.
1: Well, one of the things that helped enormously in doing that book, is was a hard book to do. It took a long time. But I bought a uh, a Remington 700 police uh, uh, and I started reloading for it. And in that way, even though I would never call myself a marksman, I taught myself the rifle. And each day or each week, there was some new discovery of what makes a rifle shoot and how hard it is to shoot and everyone, you know, in the movies, well, we don't need to go there. You know, the movies, it's all phony. And um, particularly in those days, there was no no sniper chic like there is now. Um, And I, I think my enthusiasm for what I was learning at the range was helping enormously my the writing of that book it's it's and i don't i i just think there was a two-way uh street or an osmosis or some vulcan mind mill, or something was going on that made the process turn out the way it did
0: and uh i mean it was i still
1: got that rifle by the way love it it's been through about four stocks now it's got a mcmillan camouflage stock nice. I can't remember the scope I have on it. Anyway,
0: they're great rifles, So, Yep. Oh, absolutely. And uh, i made this right after nine eleven. Um, it was I was in Guam at the time, midnight in Guam, and uh, people start banging on doors up and down the hallways, and we go down to the basement and we watch the twin towers fall on television. Mm. And uh, the next day, I went out and we we went down to the little PX or something that we had, and they made these business cards, and you could put anything on them. And so. I put this on. I'm not sure if any of you can see that one, but I know I've shown this to you before. You and uh, yeah. so this right here, this is our platoon symbol. We had the knight right there, Delta platoon. And it says, we deal in lead, friend, from Magnificent Seven, of course, said by uh, Steve McQueen and SEAL uh, uh, Team 5 Delta platoon scout snipers. And so I That's made so these, cool. and that came directly from this book. And uh, I thought we were going to leave them in calling cards all across Afghanistan, of course, which, uh, (laughs) you know, things did get busy for us, but we went to, uh, ended up going to Kuwait and doing the shipboardings initially. And then I made it to Afghanistan in 2003. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was like the first thing I did was go and make
1: these. Can you send me one of those? Yes.
0: I I, I was going to ask you if I had sent one to you because I meant to do it and now I found the stack in the move. So this is coming your way. I found like uh, 10 of them left over. I'd love to have that. that, That's coming your way. That is definitely coming your way. But uh, I mean, these books obviously have had such an impact on uh, on my life, but um, you also incorporate there's some hints that you leave in, in these books. And I remember I've talked to you about it before. I've asked you if it was intentional that you left some uh, uh, JFK assassination uh, lines sprinkled here and there, whether that was intentional or not, uh, because there was quite a bit of time that passed between point of impact and the third bullet. Um, but uh, where were you when, uh, I mean, you were quite, you obviously we young at the time, but where were you when, uh, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated?
1: I was at New Trier Township High School. And I remember it vividly. I, anybody who was of that age, uh, any baby boomer will be able to tell you exactly what it was like. And uh, I just remember being in the lunch hall and someone came downstairs and said, I just heard someone important has been shot. I, I I'm not sure who. And we all sort of looked at each other. And it was a, another few minutes before the Dallas news broke. I don't know what she had heard just a, maybe seen an AP flash or something like that. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was a very profound moment. Uh, it's, it's still haunts today. Uh, it's very, it just can't imagine, just can't imagine what would have happened had not died. It mm-hmm. it would have just been a different century. It would be a different America. It would be just everything would be different. And this is you say the same thing of Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and it just uh, it's such a uh, it's, we took a certain turn that day, and there
0: was no going back. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you brought up Abraham Lincoln, and you know everybody knows what happened to him, but not many people know who the vice president was, and and uh, and how why he was there as vice president and why, and what transpired after that assassination that really changed the the nation um, going forward. Uh, had he lived, it would have been a, a different place, no doubt about it. Both of those, both of those men. Um, but uh, did you at the time or at what point did you think, Hey, I'm going to write a book about this, or I'm going to sprinkle some things here and there uh, that relate to that assassination into these novels that I might explore later. How did that, uh, that come about?
1: Well in the as i say it took a long time to write a point of impact in originally the idea was that bob lee swagger would learn that this was the team that quote hit kennedy and so i I thought that would be a real interesting reverberation because at that time i believe that lee harvey oswald was a patsy and About halfway through the writing of it, uh, Alec Posner published a book on the assassination. Mm -hmm. And he proved to my mind conclusively that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting alone and that most assassination theories were nonsense. So I went back and took out all the, the JFK stuff out of out of it. However, as you know, and one of the reasons why I would never could never be a sniper is because (laughs) I'm not good at details. (laughs) I missed about 10 of them. (laughs) So years later, it's funny, I'm sitting in this room and my friend Gary is right over there. Hey Gary, how you doing? (laughs) Uh, We were we were drinking wine (laughs) <laughs> one night, and, he, and I, he said, and I said, I had some ideas on the Kennedy assassination at that point. And I said, just off the top of my head, you know, it'd be interesting if Bob Lee Swagger took on the Kennedy assassination. And one second later, I knew that would be my next book. You know, sometimes it happens that fast. And uh, as usual, Gary was a great help in, in all the work that was done on that book. And um, as I say, when I went through, well, actually, I didn't. I hired a friend of mine a <laughs> professional research to go through uh, and read, very carefully read Point of Impact. And he found all these allusions to, uh, to the Kennedy assassinations that I had missed. Uh-huh. And I was able to build on them as if it was a plan instead of an accident. And you see, that's why when I, when I talk about how, what a large role serendipity plays in this. If I was more meticulous and organized, uh, I'd probably know where my socks keep going, but, I never would have
0: written the third book, <laughs> so there you go. Which is a huh? which is a fantastic book, <laughs> and uh, yeah. obviously I loved it. I mean, great and great cover, by the way. I mean, I love the yeah, it was yeah, they're, I'm, yeah, amazing. But uh, it's interesting that a mistake, or what you call a mistake on on your part, is uh, ended up influencing me so much because I leave these little things here and there uh, that in the that I'm interested in, in the hopes that one day maybe I'll turn one of them into a novel or explore a little more fully or something along those lines. Um, and it's funny to know that it that I do that, um, which I love doing, uh, because of <laughs> so, because you didn't edit all get them all the way out of there like you uh, like you meant to. <laughs> which I absolutely love. (laughs) But uh, there's also, there's something I wanted to read here. And it comes from a piece you wrote in uh, for the post in November of 2001. And you said, uh, that is why when you look at the small arms, the Taliban and the Northern Alliance use, and the sleeker things our soldiers carry, you can see not just things and stuff, but ideas and metaphors, the drift of violent history over the dusty hills of the raw land. You can feel shadows of a past never forgotten. When it is over and history has moved elsewhere, only the bones and the guns, one whitening, the other rusting, will remain. I mean, that's incredible. And I remember reading this at the time when it came out because I'm searching everything bin Laden and uh, as I'm an intel rep for the platoon at the time. And, and then I see this and I see it's from you. And uh, you know that one has uh, has stayed with me. I mean, it's beautiful writing, obviously. And, uh, and it's in, and this isn't for a book. This is for, uh, for a post article and everything you do has, that's what I mean by saying like, you know, that is Stephen Hunter. That's no one else could have written that. Um, it's just, just so, so well done. Um, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to, wanted to read that, but it's, uh, that one stays with me. So I, try, that's something I aspire Toward. I'm always trying to do better. I'm always trying to make the next novel a little better, obviously move the ball forward a little bit for myself yeah. and for the genre, yeah. a tiny little bit. And, um, because of things like that, you, uh, you are, you have been and remain an, an inspiration.
1: I remember that piece. And, uh, I mean, one of the things I'm very proud of is that I, for a while, while I was there, I brought to the post a more reasoned, more articulate, uh, more uh, historically responsive attitude towards guns. And it was entirely uh, inimical to their culture. And they they let me do it. And uh, I, I wrote several pieces on guns for them uh, that I was very proud to have, A, written. I thought they were some of my better pieces. And B, that I was able to, again, that's what I'm trying to represent. I always saw myself as ambassador from gun world. And I wanted people to see that in the newsroom of the Washington Post, someone who knew the difference between a 308 and a 30-06 could also write very well, work very hard, be funny in the ironic way of journalists and, uh, be a real addition to the newspaper. And that was, I, I mean, I felt th- that was my mission. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know if I accomplished it, but I worked to accomplish it. Wow. Uh, and I, am proud to have done that.
0: Yeah, no, incredible. And, uh, and it was after this, after you wrote that piece and a few others that you did get the Pulitzer and, uh, yes, the Pulitzer, that third, idea. was it the third time you were up for it? Is that right? No,
1: it was the... Well, I'd been up for it many times. Oh. It was the uh, it was or finalist, the, I guess. It was the third time I was a finalist. Got it. And I, I have to say, the Pulitzers are people don't understand the Pulitzers. They're not abs. They're not for pure journalism. There's a lot of horse trading. There's a lot of politics, and the awards themselves have different meanings depending on who the judges are and who the recipient is. Sometimes they're for careers. Sometimes they're to make up for mistakes. Uh, sometimes they're to acknowledge uh, you, you know great moments. Sometimes they're for luck. I always think that the, the Pulitzer Prize in photography and news photography is really a Pulitzer Prize in luck. Not that the photograph photographers who take those shots aren't great, but, uh, you know, I look at Joe Rosenthal on Iwo Jima. He took 50 pictures in, of the flag raising and he just, you know, happened to get that one composition that he probably didn't even notice. And I don't even he didn't develop the picture. So he didn't even know he'd taken that picture. And, you know, it's a great, great photograph. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
0: yeah. I was just in Pearl uh, Harbor, uh, last week, last week, a week before. Oh, that's right. And, you were yeah, uh, yeah I was amazed. Brought my daughter out there for the 80th anniversary yep. commemorative events. And, um, we went to a Marine base over there and there is that, there's a statue of that, uh, there's a memorial of, uh, of that flag raising right there. And we had a yeah. ceremony around it and everything. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, probably the most, one of the most iconic or the most iconic photo ever, ever taken. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but, uh. Yeah, certainly. Certainly powerful. Oh my gosh. And I love the story behind it, the whole the whole thing. Yeah. Um yeah. gosh. And uh so when we think about state of the nation today, um and you have all these years of being right there in the newsroom. Uh you have the novels, you have the shooter movie, we have the series on USA. I mean, incredible. You accomplished your life goals. You've inspired a generation of writers, um and journalists, uh critics. Um what has changed in the tone, or do you pay attention to uh, other novels or uh, or movies uh, as far as following along with popular culture of the time? Because popular culture is a very powerful thing, uh, not just within our borders, but outside to the rest of the world as well. I mean, our most powerful export used to be out of Hollywood to the rest of the world. Um, and now we have this, uh, it seems like this self loathing, this moral vanity. That has uh, invaded most of most of media, and and I wonder if you notice it in other other novels, or if you pay attention to that, or in, in films, um, or or uh, or do you just keep your head down and keep working? Because you've done a lot of things, you've had a lot going on. You've had uh, Basel's War come out. You have Targeted, which uh, by the time this drops will be out. You have with a Bullet Garden that's coming out this summer, I think. Um, you've had a lot going on. So, do you pay attention to the shift in culture? popular culture, uh, in through the medium of popular fiction and popular film?
1: I'm certainly aware of it. Um, I actually try and shield myself from it in the sense that I prefer, as I mentioned earlier, the fifties. And that's always, uh, you know, those are, as I say, those are the, those are the old red gods that I still worship. Uh, and, uh, I kind of think that uh, to put it crassly that that's a good career move mm. in other words you know it's just so much of what is politically correct is banal and there are so many authors who are so desperate to fit in and whether they believe this stuff or not they are they they don't have the leverage, they don't have the market power, they don't have the uh, you know, they they don't have the courage to to fight it. And so they go along with it, you know, and in a the short run, it's probably uh profitable. Uh isn't there some biblical saying what profiteth a man to gain the whole world if he loseth his soul? And so i feel at least i have not loseth my soul and uh, the books represent me they represent my beliefs they are me if you're not okay with that that's fine i'm not here to you know as far i know high school curriculum is they're still teaching the scarlet letter they're not teaching that <laughs> maybe they're not even teaching the scarlet letter well, they're probably teaching some magna from Japan. Well, anyway, I need to go there. Anyway, what I'm just trying to say is that I am aware of what's going on. Uh, it does disturb me. It it has to. How could I have written the books that I have and have it not disturb me? Uh, and I will. my part of the fight is to do what I do as well as I can do it for as long as I can do it. And and that's, I'm not going to be a crusader. I'm not going to give speeches or run for office or write essays or uh, this, that, the other thing. I will speak out mainly on the gun issues uh, because those are the ones that are dearest to my heart. And let the other issues, um, people, you, you know, infer from my work what my stance on those issues would be. But it's not. You know, I'm a storyteller and I love to tell stories and, and that'll always be what I do first and, and what I do best. And and I have to be loyal to that impulse. And that's how I'm loyal to myself and my beliefs. Oh,
0: I love that. I think, that I, think you're, I think you're on the, I think you're onto something. Uh, speaking of being onto something.
1: Yeah, I your part too, believe me, in both venues, you did your part in the field. And now you're doing your part as a, uh, as a writer. Thank you. Okay. So you should be very proud of your accomplishments. Let's not get too carried away by little Stevie Hunter from Northfield. Okay? Well,
0: it's, uh, <laughs> Hey, uh, if, if you saw the, the, my library and all those, the first editions that are in a box out there, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I sincerely appreciate everything you've done, continue to do. And, uh, and more importantly, uh, our friendship—that just means uh, means the world to me—and you. I mean, you blurb my first book without without question, uh, and that meant the world to me. Uh, that to, to read that—that was—I uh, mean, nothing nothing even came close. Nothing nothing's come close except when we started our book tours together in 2019, which was so fun. Was and it was you know was not a not even a year later, not even eight months later or so, the world would change, and uh, and getting together in person became much more difficult. Um, but we got to do that in 2019, go to dinner out there at poison pen, uh, and, uh, and have a, a fantastic time together. And I hope we can get on the range because this COVID thing has put us, uh, behind schedule. We need to get on the range together and send some rounds wow. down wow. range.
1: Okay. And,
0: uh, that's on that's hopefully things open up a little bit here and we can, we can make that, uh, that happen here in 2022. Um, wow. but targeted is going to be out by the time this drops and uh this is the latest and that uh, they overnighted the cardback cover to me but it didn't make it in time so it's uh, it's probably in the UPS truck right now or in the FedEx vehicle headed this way but uh but this is the uh the, the arc uh, or the galley copy here so the early edition um and was this one uh That Was was this sitting around for a little bit or did you uh, bust this one out in a year or what was the story behind this? Because you shifted over to, uh, which makes me very happy to have you at Simon & Schuster, Emily Bessler Books, Um, but uh, uh, what was the story behind Targeted?
1: There's a lot of inside publishing stuff. Uh, I wish I could say that it was censored because I'm so true to my beliefs. It was censored by liberal New York, but that's not true it wasn't censored at all. What happened was that I wanted to publish another book, and that was the book, uh, Basil's War. And when I went ahead with that and the smaller publisher, it threw them off, and they were a little annoyed at uh, uh, Putnam's. And uh, they felt that Publishing that—that's when Targeted was scheduled for last for, for this year, not next year. And uh, I had to choose between dumping one or the other. And because of, I really like Basil's War, and because I had a commitment to Otto Penzler, I chose to remove uh, Basil uh, to, Targeted from Putnam's and. Happily, Emily took it up right away, and uh, so now it's it is coming out later than it was originally scheduled to come out. I don't think that hurts it. In fact, it may actually help it. Um, I'm way backed up now. I'm like Stephen King. I have books that I've finished that won't be published for years. I have a World War II novel that I like very very much called <clears throat> The Bullet Garden. And that'll be coming out next year. Targeted, as you say, has just dropped. Uh, what It's about what it reflects is I've always been offended by the vulgarity of men of inaction, criticizing men of action for what they did in action. I hate it when they say, well, why didn't police, you know, detective, why didn't you shoot the gun out of his hand? Or why didn't you fire a warning shot? And these people know nothing. And when they set out to judge the people who put their lives on the line with firearms, I find that really deeply, profoundly offensive in all venues from military to police to civilian shooting. And I've been churning for years figuring out how to write a book about that issue. And I finally figured it out. I, for many years, I've also wanted to put Bob Lee Swagger on trial, just didn't know how or where to do it, or the best way to do it, the venue, the possibilities. And then somehow it all sort of came together for me. And I figured all those technical issues out and I came up with a fairly interesting, I think it's interesting, uh, story in which the judges, the people in the ivory towers finally find their necks on the chopping block, and all of a sudden, they love the man with the gun. Oh, he's their best friend. They love his action. They, they just can't wait for him to, to take save their lives. And writing that was very cathartic for me, and it was just lots and lots and lots of fun. And as you will notice, uh, or have noticed, there's a lot of, it's in some sense, it's a satire. I think, among other things, it's pretty damn funny, and I have some exaggerated portraits of some well-known politicians in there that I think people will enjoy. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. You know, I, I don't know. I did a book this political before, and that was um, Soft Target and mm-hmm. uh, Target Books. There, there you
0: know, go. So yeah. Oh, yeah. good <laughs> zeros over here. There's Soft Target right here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bam. There, there it, it is.
1: is. I did that. Yeah. And that's a that's also a satire. Uh there's so much gun smoke in my books that people don't notice the satire. <laughs> oh no, it's noticeable
0: in this one for sure. Uh and Bob Lee has gotten a, a little more humorous over his over his time. Uh he has, <laughs> yes, yes.
1: Well, people do change, yep. you know, they're never the as they were. I did. Uh Gary didn't,
0: but I did. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And I did notice the uh uh similarities between some politicians and uh some okay. some <laughs> some people who uh might be actually out there in uh walking the halls of Congress right now. Um but yeah, no, this is fantastic. I'm so glad that you you wrote this. Absolutely love everything that you do, obviously. So um hope everybody picks this up. Did you talk to my wife, Jack? <laughs> I didn't, church, you know. I didn't even need to. I didn't even need to. So my hope is that people pick this up and are, and say, oh man, I want to go back to the beginning. And then boom, start at the beginning wow. and then work their way through. Because if people haven't discovered you yet, then they have a, they have a great 2022 ahead of them because uh, there's a lot out there to explore. And uh, if they hit this, they can go back to the beginning and then move forward from there and have a wonderful year, uh, reading, putting down the digital distractions, which is so important these days because we're uh, all those inputs coming in right through that phone. Um, definitely do not do us that much good as a, as individuals or as a nation. So sit down with this, you'll have a a, amazing time. Um, and then I had a had a personal question because, uh, I don't have a 38 super, uh, in my collection yet. Um, and, uh, I've had, it's on, been on my list for years and i learned about it through you a long time ago. And, uh, Earl Swagger, of course, uh, uses it in Havana and Bob Lee Swagger uses it. Uh, uh and do I want it' cause I think it's 1954 where, uh, where Earl has it on his hip, but, uh, do I want one pre-war years or do I want one just after World War II? Where do you, where do you want to, what do you want to pick up?
1: The pre war year guns are beautiful. You know, that was when Colt was absolutely making the most magnificent uh, firearms in the world. However, they are held not to be as accurate because of some issue with head spacing. They don't head space on the whole cartridge, they head space on the rim, and that makes them a little more wobbly in the chamber and there was they were always it was always a disappointment to shooter their relative lack of accuracy so you have to decide do you want the collector's piece or which would be you know be fabulous for your collection or or do you want a, a rugged shooting handgun that'll that is as I mean, it's a, it's a great compromise between the recoil of the 45 and it's yet it's more powerful. It's less, has less recoil than a 45 by far It's much better on fast strings, but at the same time uh, it has a larger magazine capacity and it's more powerful than a nine millimeter. So to my mind, it's thank God for IPSC shooting because they kept it a, they saw its brilliance as a competition cartridge. But it's it, with certain hollow point loads, it's a fantastic. Uh, piece for self defense, and it's fun to shoot. It's
0: you'll love shooting. No, I can't it. wait. I'm gonna. So, what I usually do in these situations is that uh, I both. What's I buy both? Yeah. <laughs> my, <laughs> but my, my wife will. I think she understands now. She gets it. We've been together for 21 years now, um, so she gets it now. If I can't make the decision, yeah, there is both.
1: always that issue. I've heard.
0: <laughs> so both. Yeah. So I think a pre-war and a post post-war, and then one i want to send off to Jason Burton at Heirloom Precision, uh, probably the post-war year one and have him go through it and, uh, make an exact, as, as close to, we can come to a, a replica of what Earl was carrying in Havana. I think those will be two, uh, two good additions to the, to the collection.
1: Yeah, that'll be fun. And I hope when we shoot, you have that and uh, we can,
0: we can shoot oh, that. That'd be fun. And we can talk about it. And, uh, yeah, that'd be that fantastic. Let's, let's do it for sure. Um, and then before I let you, let you go, um, there was some, some great advice you gave at Thriller Fest years ago, um, not too many years ago, but 2019, I think. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I love it. And it's, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, but I love it because it's so counter to what most people will tell you these days. And someone asked you some advice you could give to uh, young writers or writers in general, authors in general. And uh, I absolutely love this. I want to put it on a coffee cup and, and send it to you. Uh, it says, you said, sleep late. Drink early and shoot in between. I love it. <laughs> you said that and shoot in between in New York <laughs> to an audience of people that may use weapons in their novels every now and again, but uh, certainly aren't intimately uh, uh, attached to them or, uh, or or know them very well. Um, quite possibly don't even own any at all but uh to say that in that room I absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean that's what one of the things that sets you apart from from everybody else. No one else would have answered a question that way uh or could have written something like that. So um so thank you for for everything that uh that you do for all writers for the genre um and for me personally. Uh it means the world.
1: Thank you. I'm very pleased and you've done a great, uh, again, you, you need to get better heroes, but uh, I, I appreciate it. Believe me, I do.
0: Well, hopefully we'll get together here in 2022 and, uh, and get on the range yeah. and, uh, share, share, a, share a bourbon and some red wine, uh, and a nice meal. So let's, uh, put that on the calendar and, uh, yeah. so excited for targeted, uh, to for everybody else to get their hands on this and then for the bullet garden, uh, coming. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. Appreciate everything. You take care and uh, let's hit that range soon. Sounds Okay. Cool. Take care. I know I'm not the only one looking for healthy snacks for me and my family, especially after a very busy 2021, as we move into 2022. And if you've been following me, you know I'm looking forward to figuring out a schedule where I'm getting a little more sleep, where I'm getting some exercise, and where I am eating right. And that is where Paleo Valley comes in. Check them out, paleovalley.com. And you can use Danger Close 15 at checkout for 15% off your order. Now, this stuff is awesome. Paleo Valley, uh, how do I know it's awesome? because I just crushed a few of these beef sticks and these things are awesome. There's all sorts of different flavors, jalapeno, original, teriyaki, summer sausage, garlic summer sausage, and they are awesome. So Paleo Valley, thank you so much for sending these out to me. Uh, And for those that are wondering, these beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. Many on the market claim to be grass-fed, but actually are finished on Grains and they use beef sourced from small domestic farms in the US. This is a family owned company, very small family owned company. So they're making sure they do it right, that they are not cutting corners. They're prioritizing health over profit and uh, just an awesome group of people. What else do they send me here? I have these superfood bars here with grass fed bone broth proteins, and there's all sorts of flavors here too. Pumpkin spice. How did you guys know? Awesome. Dark chocolate chip. (laughs) I'm going to crush those. Lemon meringue and apple cinnamon. Uh, All sorts of supplements out there, so be sure to go check out paleovalley.com. Enter code DANGERCLOSE15 for that 15% off your order. Once again, it's 100% grass-fed beef with higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins and minerals, and bioavailable protein. So thank you so much. I am fired up to get move into 2022 here, and uh, this will be a part of my journey. And look at this one right here, uh, organic super greens. Oh yeah, I am all over that. So check them out, paleovalley.com. Danger Close 15 at checkout for 50% off that order. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close Podcast. So if you've been following me for a while, you know that I am very picky about the glass that I put on my rifles, uh, glass scopes uh, that I put on my rifles. So uh, typically um, you'll see Swarovski's on my hunting rifles, uh, Night Force Optics on uh, my uh, AR type auto-loading weapon systems because that's what I used as a sniper in the SEAL teams um, and binos though, binos, you got to have binos everywhere. And once again, if you followed me for a while, I'm very fond of my Swarovskis that have the, um, the range finder inside. But, uh, but if I lose those, if I have those in my car, I'm, I'm going to feel that one. Those are, uh, those are pretty pricey. Um, and, uh, so what's great about these, these are from SIG. These are their binos. Um, I love these things as a very picky glass guy. Um, I have used these probably more than I've used anything else because I'm not afraid to lose them because they're very competitively priced and they are awesome. Um, and the only reason I haven't reviewed them before is because they're always in my vehicle, in my pack or whatever else when I sit down to uh, to do the podcast. Um, but we're in the middle of a move. So I grabbed them and I uh, wanted to make sure I talked about them before they went back into my vehicle, back into my backpack um, or wherever they're going to go next. Actually, I'm going to get a few more of these because I like them that much. Um, they're going to go all our vehicles, different places around the house, um, different backpacks. So, um, yeah, love these, but if you lose that backpack, uh, or if, uh, something happens and you break them, once again, it is not going to, uh, hurt as much as, uh, a Swarovski type of a a bino. So, um, these are awesome. I have no problem bringing these into the field, uh, on any hunt whatsoever. Uh, these are amazing glass, Absolutely love them. So uh, yeah, pick them up. Six hour binos. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Amazing. Um, What else do I have here? Born Primitive. Yes. Better known and operated uh, workout apparel company founded by a former SEAL who recently uh, just got out of the military. Awesome guy. Uh, And yeah, Born Primitive. What do we have here? So we were both at the Pearl Harbor 80th anniversary commemorative events a couple of weeks back and Born Primitive sponsored uh part of that uh that uh, event um through the Best Defense Foundation, started by Donnie Edwards and Catherine Edwards, two amazing people who take World War II veterans back to the battlefields on which they fought. So they've taken veterans back to Iwo Jima. They've taken them to Normandy. um, And uh, on this particular uh, event, we went to Pearl Harbor and we brought 63 veterans uh, back to Pearl Harbor. And uh, the youngest was 96. The oldest was 104. And uh, yeah, Born Primitive sponsored that. Great group of people love their stuff. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much for the card. I sincerely appreciate that. And yeah, look at this. So they have, they have workout apparel right here. They just sent me this after, after Hawaii. And here's the best defense foundation shirt. Um, that they put together for that particular event, uh, sweatshirt right here. Uh, yeah. Follow them online, check out the website and I love this. I mean, the box, if you've gotten one of my, uh, uh, my books as part of the uh, uh, publication campaign, um, you'll know that I'm into some packaging because I looked at some other companies like Apple and I was like, hey, why is getting your iPhone so much different than getting, let's say, a BlackBerry from uh, 20 years ago or whatever? Uh, they put just as much thought into that packaging and that presentation as they do the product. Now, the product has to be good, obviously, but if you have a wonderful product uh, that just shows up in some chintzy, like plastic kind of whatever. It's, uh, it's just not the same as getting something that's been so thought out at every level. It just, uh, it speaks to how much thought went into that, that product and that design. So same thing here. Awesome. Love the packaging. And this thing says something cool here. It says, the only one stopping you is you. That's right. And then in the, in the bottom, when you take your stuff out, it says, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up, It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion, or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle, or it will starve to death. doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. Solid. Awesome. Thanks, guys. That is, uh, yeah, too cool. Sincerely appreciated, and sincerely appreciate uh, all that you did for best, and all that you do for the best defense foundation. So check out Best Defense Foundation as well, bestdefense.org. Uh, uh check out uh, their website, check out their social media pages and go back and look at uh the videos and the photos from this trip to uh Pearl Harbor because it was a very powerful few days out there. All right, what else do I have here? Ironclad. Oh yeah. So you'll hear me say uh when I start these podcasts that it is uh uh, I say this is a Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by, in this case, Navy Federal Credit Union. Um, Ironclad, awesome. So, Ironclad, we've been working together since the first. Book And you can go back and check out the video for the first novel, The Terminal List, and see the video that they put together for that. And it won uh, this advertising award. They did such a good job that it looked like a movie. Many people mistook it for uh, being a preview for the Chris Pratt series um, and still do because it's just they did such a good job. And I want to do a podcast for a while because I figured this is uh, a medium with which to communicate with people that wasn't available to authors 30 years ago, Uh, 40 years ago, obviously, 20 years ago even. Um, But it is a way to uh, have discussions that are much better suited for long-form conversation than they are for uh, tweeting or uh, Instagram or anything like that. So that was really why I wanted to do this because I was getting a lot of questions on Instagram and on Twitter and questions that just didn't lend themselves to a one-sentence answer. And for whatever reason social media does not seem to be the place where you're going to change anyone's mind or you're going to have a thoughtful respectful discussion um, it's just it lends itself to exactly the opposite um but on a podcast you can dive into a lot of these issues and you can explain and then you can go back and say oh no what i meant to say was this does that make sense in a in a conversation so I wanted to do it for a long time but uh, once again just like with a sniper weapon system it is important to know your capabilities And your limitations, both of those are very important um, with anything in life. So I wanted to do a podcast and I figured it would just be this, an extra thing that I did um, on the side just for people that were interested. I have conversations with with amazing people all the time. Let's just record some of those and put them out there. So I got a bunch of recording equipment and I recorded a few and that was the end of uh, my capabilities. So I found my limitation, which was now what? I got it on a card, I got it on a video. Um, and so those didn't make it out until I went to the professionals. That's right. Uh, Ironclad, awesome. Ironclad Media, once again, they've been on board from the very beginning, awesome group of people. And uh, they produce this podcast, so they know how to get it out there and put it on these different platforms, which I do not. Um, and they make it look professional, they get the right cameras, they have the audio, they can do the all these things. Just. Such a great group. So this would not exist in its present form without them. It probably wouldn't exist at all without them. And uh, so thank you, Ironclad, and thank you for sending this. Just got it last night. So look at this. And you guys know me well. Um, look at this, Ironclad branded whiskey. Solid, love it. And then uh, then this one right here. This is George Washington's straight rye whiskey. Look at that. Can you see that? Awesome. So thank you guys for sending this. Thank you so much for all that you do for the podcast, for uh, book trailers, uh, for me and my family personally, and for being such a great partner along in this journey. So sincerely appreciate it. And uh, to everybody else, hey, I think this is dropping now in 2022. Time to get after it. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. If you just listened to that whole podcast, you are probably not surprised to learn that Stephen Hunter is not on social media. So pick up his book, Targeted. If you haven't read his books before, then read this one. Then go back to the beginning with the Bob Lee Swagger series, starting with Point of Impact, and go back even further and for sure get The Master Sniper, uh, Tapestry of Spies, Day Before Midnight. Check out all of Stephen Hunter's work. It's absolutely incredible. You can find me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. You can go to officialjackcar.com, That's the website. You can link to gear at Jack Carr USA and check out the merch. And you can pre-order my next novel, In the Blood, which is coming on May 31st of 2022. If you liked what you heard on this podcast, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, stay safe keep fighting in case you missed it on a recent episode of danger close an ironclad original Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? What are you... box do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or... Right, right. An How, like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out
1: the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.